Intellectually, we know the collapse of our socioeconomic infrastructure cannot be fixed by any one president or political party. Emotionally, we want to watch somebody bring a house down on the wicked witch so we can wake up from this globalized nightmare. We don't need a leader, new technologies, or more consumer products to produce long-term change. We need each other. Damn right. Hello and welcome to another episode of Farm on the Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Phillips. On this podcast, we have conversations with artists, activists, and agriculturists on the front lines of the food movement. In those first two titles, activists and artists certainly describe today's guests. Sarah Ross and Ryan Griffiths are a dynamic duo producing videos and printed matter like books and beautiful visual images that somehow encompass the grotesque injustice of the industrialized food system worldwide. And they somehow managed to distill a whole lot of big global information down into some really compelling and uh, impactful art. And they are smart. They put the smart in art. I first heard about Ryan and Sarah because I was randomly in a bookstore here in Chicago and I picked up a book, a very small book called A Call to Farms, Continental Drift Through the Midwest Radical Culture Corridor. And I thought, hmm, that sounds like something worth giving a flip. So I went through it and sure enough, there's essays by today's guests and a bunch of their artist friends. And this was a book that was made back in 2008 when the run-up to Obama was at its fever pitch. And a lot of the essays in here kind of react to that and say, wait a minute, maybe this neoliberalism thing is just kind of a bunch of uh, frenzy and maybe we need to take a step back and look at the systemic problems. And they do just that in their work and it's quite amazing. They also uh, handed me off another book when I got to see them in their beautiful attic studio uh, in their Chicago home, and this new title is called Deep Roots, spelled R-O-U-T-E-S, The Midwest in All Directions, where the authors critically reflect on the nature of territory, citizenship, mobility, and the possibilities for a more just and egalitarian society. They tackle those big themes with grace, and they do it beautifully through their artwork. So I want you to enjoy this talk and also check out something I haven't done before, which is mixing in some audio from other work that the artists have made. So they'll talk about some of their films. They make a lot of videos and uh, you'll hear some of the uh, soundtrack to that video. So hopefully that gives you more of a feel of what Sarah and Ryan's work is all about. So open your mind. Get ready for a whole lot of info, and here they are. A group of us had moved to, moved to the Midwest around the same time, or moved to, to different parts of the Midwest. So, for instance, like Sarah mm-hmm. Black, I'm sorry, sorry, Sarah Black, Sarah Knaus, yes. mm-hmm. and Nick Brown were living in Chicago, and they moved to mm-hmm. Iowa City. Um, Sarah Lewison was living in San Francisco and moved to Carbondale, etc. And so... Um, part of the part of the book came together uh, around this kind of experience of being in the Midwest and like what is this sort of space we're living mm-hmm. in. And then Brian Holmes and Claire Pentecost had been doing a project in New York called um, Continental, Continental Drift, Drift. Mm-hmm. and it was um, you know looking at major sort of movements um, around you know sort of power blocks like the EU, NAFTA, etc. Um, and that was, trading blocks. That and, was with another collective in New York called Sixteen Beaver. Mm-hmm. And so what they were doing was sort of organizing sem- like seminars with with geographers, mm-hmm. artists, mm-hmm. other sort of like activists and scholars and that sort of thing. And so. To think about how yeah. to think about the how these major um, you know sort of economic blocks are shaping our lives, and so um, so several of us were living in the Midwest. Um, Brett Bloom and Bonnie Fortune, who had been living here in Chicago, moved down to Champaign Urbana, and they I think initiated some of the ideas of like, hey, what would it be to have this kind of same idea of this seminar but here? And so we started thinking about like how does 
um, what does globalization look like here? Mm-hmm. Um, what does this idea of sort of continental drift or the sort of theories that were coming out of that seminar look like in this place? Um, and so it encouraged us to organize sort of stops throughout the Midwest and have this sort of mobile seminar. So we went from southern Illinois kind of up to the Driftless area driftless, in Wisconsin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just tried to try to think about like, um, what is globalization and counter-globalization? Or, you know, because also too, a lot of people came out of these sort of counter-globalization era mm-hmm. um, of the, you know, late 90s. And so like, how are people sort of resisting, um, mm-hmm. you know, total hegemony of corn and soy trade yeah. <laughs> um, in the Midwest, and what did that look like? Well, that's what I'm curious about. So my, so a little bit about what I'm doing. So yeah. I, I run an urban farm at a Montessori school, but for years I've just been interested in uh, how people make the leap from whatever they were doing before to becoming interested in farming in a different kind of realm. So was it farming, was it the farming practice that was kind of like in your minds already as a as a subject to look at in globalization or in that does that come from your own backgrounds like do you have a farming background well in this in that that project uh, a big part of the the impulse um mm-hmm. for a lot of us who sort of put together the seminar that resulted in that that little book mm-hmm. um was the uh, experience of being part of discussions about globalization and, and neoliberalism who were not living in metropolitan areas, mm-hmm. um, and but who weren't part of kind of the intellectual discussions and didn't couldn't catch the latest, you know, yeah, and film or whatever, right? And and just the fact that that talking about neoliberalism in even not even in a rural area, but mm-hmm. in in small towns that were surrounded mostly by rural areas, mm-hmm. that discussion looks very different than it does when you're talking about that topic in New York City. Right. where you can kind of assume that you're in the center of uh, globalization um, yeah. in that kind of a city. Yeah. And so that was part of a mobilizing force. And um, for Sarah and I, driving through and um, being surrounded by that landscape mm-hmm. constantly, which mm-hmm. is all corn and soy surrounding Champaign-Urbana, and not, you don't have to go very far out of Chicago to be surrounded by that. Absolutely. Um, for us, it was figuring out what... Um, Okay, what is all this? Mm-hmm. Where is it going? Why is it? Um, why is it here? Mm-hmm. Um, why is there so much of it? Um, why, why is there what we call farms? Why is there so much land devoted to what we call farms that is not even producing things that are uh, immediately edible? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was became kind of a big um, mm-hmm. set of questions for us. Mm-hmm. Also, neither of us, neither of our families, immediate families, are farmers. Okay. Um, you know, the closest thing is like Ryan's family were fishermen in Florida, okay. um, mm-hmm. but um, but we didn't grow up on farms and mm-hmm. and we had moved from Los Angeles to Central mm-hmm. Illinois and um, re- you know really I had no idea that the first season that I saw the corn and soy crops dry on the stalk I mm-hmm. thought to myself so <laughs> naively that like the that something was wrong and the farmers maybe didn't know <laughs> that their right. crops were going. Call the farmers yeah. <laughs> I just had no idea. I mean, I grew up in North Carolina and in a small town and, and f- corn is harvested there, mm-hmm. but it's a lot of eating corn. So it was really different. Um, and in general, you know, the corn and soy crops are everywhere in mm-hmm. North Carolina, um, you know, all across the sort of East and um, Midwest. And, um, but, but there's a much greater diversity of growing um, in North Carolina, and you can kind of really see it when you move mm-hmm. through the landscape. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very, it felt really foreign to be here mm-hmm. um, and to not, yeah, so part of it was kind of trying to understand where we were. Um, the other thing that, that I felt was super unique about moving to Champaign-Urbana is that we had moved from Los Angeles, and if people in Los Angeles kind of thought we were moving to, like, you know, the end of the world or something. <laughs> sure. And um but crazy what <laughs> or they thought it was it was Chicago. We kept telling them where uh-huh. we were moving and they kept saying, "Oh, these are these friends of of mine that are that are moving to Chicago." And we're sure. like, "We're not." At that time, we weren't living in Chicago. And it's like, "We're not moving to Chicago. There's a whole state, yeah. Yeah. actually a whole region <laughs> there that isn't yeah. Chicago." Champaign Urbana is a very small community. It's not yeah. it's right. a college town, but it's very small. Right. But it's um, a very small place. Yeah. But but one thing that 
was unique about living there, and I was commuting a lot um, to different places for for teaching, for work, and um, is that there was something called the, um, oh, blank. Um, <laughs> it's called the Agriport, mm-hmm. something called the Agriport mm-hmm. on the radio, and um, to me, I mean, I listened to it, and it was like listening to, um, you know, a station in another language because mm-hmm. they talked about things I had no idea, but they also talked about weather in other places of the mm-hmm. globe. And so I was really interested in what, um, you know, coming from Los Angeles, how did how was I learning about weather and um, and sort of you know gr- growing things mm-hmm. in China or in Brazil As when I was living in such a small place. Perfect soil moisture. Additional precipitation will still be needed as we move closer to the main growing season. The outlook here in the U.S. continues. They'll have plenty of moisture to feed on while the weather is relatively dry. The second week of the two-week forecast does bring additional moisture into portions of. I mean, it's great. I mean, it was interesting because it was like listening to the stock market or something again that for me was pretty foreign. Um, but then they were they would talk about like you know pork bellies mm-hmm. or. Um, and they talked a lot about futures, and I was like, I like the future, so like, what is this thing? <laughs> um, so, it, so it was interesting, but I, I really did listen to that, um, you know, kind of religiously, just to try to understand what they were saying, and then to under, and then once you kind of can get through some of the coded language, then they would talk about, um, you know, real issues of, um, of, of plant life um, around the globe, but of course, all that plant life has another destination. It's not for the, the plant life that I, you know, think about like eating corn or eating food. Um, and really is for, a, you know, as another um, way of moving through the world. And so it just really became a, for me, kind of an anchor to think about these issues. It's such an interesting approach. And that's, that's what I love about talking to artists, uh, the way that they just kind of um, just insert themselves into their environment that could be an alien space. Because I know when I drive with my family out into rural Illinois and you see cornfields, you think, oh, when they're green, it's like, they're beautiful, you know, it's so pastoral and it's so bucolic in a way, but you don't realize, or maybe you start to realize that this is not for you. This is a kind of an alien landscape that you're not really allowed to even be on. And if you were, there's probably chemicals that you don't want <laughs> on your person. And like you said, then that all that grain is being sent. And I think, I, I would guess that most people just don't realize when they look at a field of corn that it's not feeding people, it's not even staying in this country. Um, and you guys have this knack for being able to kind of put that into some kind of scale. So how did you start to develop that process from just doing that kind of research of just listening and observing to like, okay, how do we take this monstrosity of a of an economy and put it into a screen like how does that how does that work (laughs) as an artist I think that some this um, project the call to farms and Mm -hmm. a couple other things that got us sort of um, thinking a lot more about like where do we live what does it mean to live here with some were some big starting points and then we also I think we're particularly interested in living in a small town and thinking about how um, so many processes of um, sort of the metropole, the metropole happen outside mm-hmm. the metropole, and so to understand how one lives anywhere, you have to sort of look outside. Um, and um, and it got us to thinking about this project called Regional Relationships, where we tried to think about how to connect, how to look at artist projects, um, um, and and support artist projects that were connecting um, disparate spaces or thinking about. Um, things that cross um, boundaries of, of spaces. And so we um, started com- um, trying to commission um, artists and then we would send the projects out to communities mm. in which they were, you know, sort of crossing these boundaries or, or looking at these two, two or more spaces. Um, and 
we commissioned a project with um, Claire Pentecost and Matthew Friday and a couple of people, and then we went to um, a scholar named Faranak Miraftab mm-hmm. in Champaign-Urbana who was, who was doing this really interesting work in Beardstown and looking at globalization in a really small place and how that um, played out um, in terms of the urban planning of this former sundown town that now is home to uh, people from Central and South America and, mm-hmm. and Africa. And, um, and is that your most recent work at the, the Beardstown um, Moving Flesh? Yeah. It's not. Um, it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a series of projects that got us started. Okay. Um, and, and our most recent project was looking at Brazil in the Midwest mm-hmm. of the United States. But Farinock actually said, we thought, we thought we would work with her. We thought, well, in the cases where we're not working with artists, we'll, we'll work with scholars and ask them like how we can help them develop something. And we thought maybe we'll make a, like a trilingual newspaper for the town or mm-hmm. something like that. And she said, maybe you guys can p- paint a mural. Mm-hmm. And we were both like, well, we don't, Neither of us, we don't paint murals. (laughs) And um, and because we said, you know, what do you think that they need or what do you think you want for the space? And and she said, "Uh, maybe a mural. And so after, you know, a a quick conversation, it was clear that that we would make um, something that was kind of like a documentary or a kind of experimental documentary. So that kind of really got us started. Oh, and that, and in that instance... And that started around maybe 2008, 2009. Okay. Okay. And in that instance, you know, the question was like, how do you take something big like a, you know, the global economy of corn and soy, and how do you, where do you start with that? Mm-hmm. In that instance, we we started with this small town, Beardstown, mm-hmm. um, and even though we were interested in sort of like the human experience of globalization, in order to understand why people were there from all over the globe, in a in a landscape in a region where jobs had been outsourced everywhere. Mm-hmm. Why were people from all over the globe coming to this small town? Mm-hmm. Um, in order to understand that, we felt like we had to look at the landscape mm-hmm. of corn and soy that brought that basically brought um, people there because pigs were there because okay. you know so that so all these things sort of came okay. together and and so it was really through that Beardstown lens where the interest in in the soy and corn commodities kind of came together, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a slaughterhouse there. All these people are come come to work at the slaughterhouse. But Cargill, they're... right? Yeah. Well, yeah. That, now it's owned so... by a company called JBS, which is okay. oddly enough a Brazilian company. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, so, you know, pe- so um, in this instance, these companies are not outsourcing <clears throat> Um, uh, pig slaughtering to other countries. Instead, they mm-hmm. are using the resources of corn and soy that are already here to grow pigs, then to slaughter them here, and then to send that that meat all over. Mm-hmm. So, um, so through that small lens, we we're able to sort of talk about something larger. And so, since we're talking about that one, the film is called Moving Flesh, and it's is it the longest piece you've made? It's yeah. almost like a mini feature or a. Yeah, it's about 55 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what qualified. We don't really do like the (laughs) film um, festival circuit, so we're not quite versed in that language. Um, Because your work shows in galleries, and then you have your own website. Yeah. Um, So uh, it's a it's a really interesting piece of film because uh, you hired actors to read the interviews that. The researcher that you mentioned had conducted, I guess, right? Yeah, she did. Some of them were interviews that that she had conducted in in her doing her research for a, a book, which is called uh, Global Heartland, mm-hmm. um, which uh, I think uh, was published last year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, some of the interviews that are 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 um, not not reenacted, but you know, read from um, by the actor. Some of them are are from her interviews, and some of them are interviews that we did um, through contacts that we made going to Beardstown or contacts that she suggested mm-hmm. um, we talked to mm-hmm. there. So it's it's a mix, and and a, and a very small amount of them are from oral history archives. 
Um, Especially at the very beginning where it's just kind of explaining the sort of history of the town. Some of that comes from um, oral history archives. Which could be decades old or at least years old. Oh, yeah. Early 1900s. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Some of the stories are from them, and then they were recorded by, like, the Illinois State Archives in the 40s or something. But you don't get that from the film. It almost looks like people are having a conversation back and forth from current day. That's really interesting. Yeah. And also some of the actors play different roles so like Mm -hmm. there's a white actor a man who plays a local resident in one uh scene and then later he's like an african immigrant the son of an african immigrant or something Mm -hmm. and he doesn't change his affect or it's just interesting interesting choice so is that purely uh, by need or (laughs) we some of it well it comes from a, a couple of different um things. One is when we started the project, we were recording interviews on video and in audio with people not knowing what we were doing. We knew we were doing some kind of a documentary project, but we didn't know um, exactly how they would be used. Um, And as we were recording the interviews and sort of thinking about, okay, what what form is this Mm -hmm. going to take? Um, And even though we were getting permission from everybody that we spoke to um, and recorded um, for using their, the, the material they were giving us um, in the form of a documentary. Um, there were instances where we thought about, okay, this is something we wanna show in Beardstown. We want people in Beardstown to see this. Um, and there were a few instances where we're like, okay, even though they say this is okay, um, I'm not sure that, that this is something that, that we would want these people to be in the room with them saying this with other people mm. also in the community. Because some, the, some of the themes are pretty, are pretty touchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Racial. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah and so the, I, I think because, because some of them felt touchy, like, and it's a really small community, we didn't, mm-hmm. we weren't interested in like our project being something to like agitate mm-hmm. further. Mm-hmm. Um, there's already a lot, a lot of tension. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we also thought that um, one thing that was happening in the different interviews was, was that people were saying um, the way in which, um, you know, race and, um, and sort of class bias sort of constantly was shifting between different groups, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So one group could say, well, that group is a problem. You know, like the Africans are fine, but not the African-Americans. I mean, this mm-hmm. is stuff that comes up mm-hmm. um, in these interviews. We thought that if we um, constantly shifted the the person who is delivering it, mm-hmm. it would somehow kind of, um, you know, be its own agitation of, mm-hmm. of um, sort of subject position. I mean, another, another mm-hmm. way, too, to read it is that, like... <clears throat> If you um, to identify with someone who says, "Oh yeah, that other group is a problem," um, then there, we thought that some way by dislocating the sort of who's saying that it might, um, you know, even for just a, like a half second, dislodge um, the the biases around mm-hmm. um, or you know um, become a disjointed experience of how people experience bias. No, yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, I felt like when I was watching it, there's a woman who I think is reading a man's dialogue. Like, mm-hmm. it, it seems like she's reading like an older yeah. resident, kind of an older white resident. And I was working at a filling station in Rushville, and it was about time to close. And this old black preacher had got off a bus and walked down the street just looking around. And the bus went off and left him. Town's about closed up. There's no stores open, nothing. And He was going to Macomb for a revival, and Macomb's a good 30 miles away. So he come down to the station, and that poor old man was just terrified. I mean, he was really scared. It was uh, 11 o'clock, 10 o'clock at least, and, and here he is, stuck there. And so I told him, well, I'll close up in about 20 minutes. I'll drive you down to Macomb. And he could not believe that. I mean, he just expected, I think, that I was going to take a tire iron and hit him upside the head and throw him. I mean, he was just terrified. What was a risky, we went into it knowing and thinking that it was a risky strategy to employ and that we wanted to maintain... um, 
we wanted to maintain the kind of connection you get to a story when it's a person saying it, and, mm -hmm. and you can see the person, you can see mm -hmm. um, uh, their facial expressions, their body language, and that sort of thing, while also doing what Sarah was just describing, trying to somehow dislocate some of the things that you might already assume about somebody before they even start talking. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And by having the same people in multiple roles um, sort of furthering that even more, that, that sort of disjointedness between our expectations of who somebody is and what they say. So you mentioned that um, Beardstown, Illinois, right? Mm -hmm. Beardstown, Illinois was uh, totally white for over 80 years before this transmogrification of <laughs> influx of people, people who were aggressively recruited from Central America, um, as far as I don't know how far away, but I think that first when Cargill opened, they were the people were recruited from other Cargill plants. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you know they were pulling from their own workforce and recruiting them to to um, Beardstown to work. So that might have been in Oklahoma or in Texas or wherever. Um, but I think the myth in the town became, oh, they're they're at the border, you know. Um, and um, and I think that through that recruitment process, you know, um, you know, people recruit their own family members, um, or or they hear about it because you know that cargo does recruit, you know, all over. Um, and I think the same thing happened for African immigrants um, that they first recruited, I think maybe from New York, and then mm. and then. You know, now or when we were interviewing people, people were coming directly from Togo if they got mm. a, a visa. Um, if they're part of the visa lottery, they're coming directly from Togo straight to Beardstown. Um, and so, shock. so yeah, so it was a uh, um, that that's kind of how that happened. There's actually I want to go back to something I highlighted in one of Ryan's essays from 2008 on. Um, it's called Notes on Calling Before Digging. And there's a part about root shock that I thought was really interesting. Um, public health scholar Mindy Thompson, uh, full of love, uses the familiar gardening term root shock to describe the often catastrophic effects of upheaval when people are forcibly removed from their homes due to urban redevelopment and housing policies. So we're not talking about forcible removal, but nevertheless, it seems like the shock was being experienced by the people who opted to move to Beardstown and work in like super mm -hmm. difficult, dangerous conditions. And then the residents of Beardstown had to kind of like absorb that. Yeah, Fairnock describes it in her book um, that, that um, um, the nearby town of Jacksonville was an integrated town and Beardstown was not. Um, and it was so, some downtown, like you mentioned. Right, it was just. Basically means. Yeah, the people weren't protected by the law um, after the sun went down, and some towns had bells, sometimes had some towns had signs. Um, so, so people might have worked in Beardstown um, mm -hmm. during its sundown years, but they they were not allowed to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, and so people lived in Jacksonville, the nearby town, and mm -hmm. would commute over for work. Um, and so when. Um, Fair enough describes it when when people started moving to Beardstown to work at the cargo factory, um, Latinos that um, that the white folks um, were were um, at first, um, you know, um, unhappy but sort of to tolerated um, them as maybe she described as honorary whites, um, and then um, it's and like then the assimilation that happened all through America's uh, history, right. and people from Ireland or wherever. Movie. They lose their Irish traditions, right. but they because they're white, right? Mm -hmm. So that they they were sort of tolerated, but then um, but there were tensions for sure, um, um, and those tensions kind of came to a head. Um, I think it was in 1995 when there was a shooting and the person fled, hmm. and um, and um, you know shortly after they burned a cross in the town square mm -hmm. and um, there was you know real. Uh, violence and threats of violence that happened throughout the town, and at that time, I think that um, 
you know, um, the sort of film describes it, certainly Fairnock's work describes it, that people kind of were like came to this choice of like, how do we want to deal with this? And teachers, importantly, who were working with young people, um, I think were kind of, a, you know, built bridges mm. and tried to, um, and, and Latino um, organizers from Springfield came in and tried to um, build bridges. The Catholic Church tried to build bridges. So there's ways in which... Um, uh, you know, people sort of survived and moved through that, but still mm-hmm. to this day, and of course in the you know era of Trump, I I can only imagine what kinds mm-hmm. of um, issues people are facing there. Because we're recording this a couple of days after just atrocious violence in um, Charlottesville, Virginia. Charlottesville, mm-hmm. and um, I think everyone's sort of been shock from that violence, but it. As I was watching your work, I was thinking about that. Like, how does that kind of violence, the resurgence of KKK and not and Nazism and kind of the unmasking of that, relate to globalized industry and um, uh, uh, ecological just devastation and companies like Cargill who can basically take over a town and not pay property taxes and not kind of follow basic safety standards. And, um, that it's just, I just wonder what your take on all of that is the interconnectedness of it. Yeah. I mean, I think Fairnack's book does a really good job Mm -hmm. of, of drawing out the complexities of that situation and that you do have, um, on the one hand, um, an industry from the very beginning that's, that's kind of built on, a certain amount of exploitation uh, of people, um, but but you know maybe like more um, intensely early on of um, uh, ecological systems. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know it's it's built on on surplus and overabundance mm-hmm. and um, degradation. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but at the, but early on the jobs were um, even though they were never you know what you would consider um, uh, safe and um, desirable jobs mm-hmm. for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always very difficult work, always kind of brutal work. Mm-hmm. Um, it was well compensated and protected and the, 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 you know, the white folks that worked those jobs um, were unionized and the unions were pretty strong mm-hmm. um, until um, you know, the late 70s and early 80s mm-hmm. um, when a lot of uh, the sort of union busting started happening in particular in that industry. Deregulation, um, yeah. kind of the Reagan era. Of- and there's a great film that, that, that shows that narrative play out in, I think it's a Hormel plant in Minnesota by Barbara Koppel called uh, The American Dream. Mm-hmm. Um, that is uh, exactly describes what happened in, in Beardstown. And I think the Hormel plant was larger um, than what was the Oscar Mayer plant in Beardstown. Um, but anyway, her, her book does a really good job of sort of taking you through that particular history um, into um, the sort of uh, past the union busting era into um, the sort of neoliberal policies outside of the metropolitan centers that, lead, that, you know, that end up having a, a multinational private company like Cargill recruiting people um, from all over the world where those jobs are desirable for people who, in the case of people coming from Togo in West Africa, had um, advanced degrees. Um, oh, and these really? were these were entry jobs into something else in North America, something um, better where they were coming from in which there were no jobs for them. You know, uh, coming from a very, very small village, um, we traveled by night to get here. So we didn't know what it actually looked like. So the next morning when we woke up, we walk around and we say, this is not America. Where are the tall buildings, uh, the big TVs, uh, the nice people? And I was ready to go back. I still had $800 in my pocket. And then how all of that relates to just interpersonal relationships between people or between different communities that end up in the same place um, is pretty complicated and complex. And, and, and that's a big focus of, of her book and some of what we try to um, 
show through the stories of people in that particular film. Amazing amount of information to try to distill into a 55 year film. So uh, when you, you said you screened it in Beardstown? Mm -hmm. And how was it attended and how was it received? Um, it was small. We went, we had a screening at the library and you know, it was interesting, um, uh, several um, white women came and they, you know, they thought that it was interesting. Uh, maybe one person said, well, you know, it kind of does seem like it's a little, it does focus on some, some negative things. I wish you could have focused on some positive things. But we actually thought we did focus on positive things through looking at how <clears throat> the trilingual, um, you know, a tri there's a trilingual library in a town of 6,000 mm -hmm. people in mm -hmm. central Illinois. That seems pretty amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And that the, the K through 8, program or the pre-k program is trilingual and then the k through eight program and their high school is dual language and that's also very unique mm -hmm. especially for a rural community very progressive. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. um but um also to um a school administrator came and he was um an a man from the african community and he he felt like it would be really important for kids to um to see the film because he thought that it, it kind of showed that that there were struggles because some s s kids um, don't um, they they recognize and they see s um, struggle and and sort of racial strife, but there's not like language for it or there's no sort of outlet for it. Um, and so he thought that it would be really good to show it um, in the schools. And one of our major sort of connections there was this really fantastic librarian um, who has since moved um, and a great. Um, um, uh, school teacher mm -hmm. who also um, I can't remember if she moved or not Claudia um, she's one of the person we actually um, interviewed um, you know she started off working at Cargill and eventually mm -hmm. um, um, got citizenship and got um, a teaching certification, teaching certification mm -hmm. to teach in the dual language program mm -hmm. so um, um, so yeah it was kind of like a a little bit of a slow you know a, a small run there mm -hmm. um but you know it's in their public library and um and Fairnock um also has her book and um you know went there and gave talks too and so we've tried to pair them together or talk about the work together because um you know her work certainly influenced um ours and she you know introduced us to people and fostered uh, you know um fostered the development of the project throughout and um and then we tried to you know be supportive of her work she was already doing it um yeah. but we tried to interview people that wouldn't interview you know that she couldn't interview okay. that kind of stuff so yeah. so we um yeah and so the thing about the the as i was watching these like i was looking for like a point of view and i mean even though you're kind of having to edit what you show, and so that can create a point of view, but it almost seems like you're just sort of showing a kind of blanket overlay of here's the kind of demographic shift that's happened and hearing from the actual people, but it's not like you're making a point at the end. You keep waiting for like, okay, well, then what happens? Like, does Cargill move out and it turns into another Detroit? or? But it doesn't do that. It's just the people, their voices. Um, and going back to your other films that are much less narrative and much more, like I think you'd call them meditation, mm -hmm. you know, that um, it's almost, it's, it's like presenting, here's the tone or the, here's what it feels like to be in a room that's, being, that's processing how many millions of tons of grain in a short amount of time you know what does that look like because you hear the market reports but you can't conceptualize that mm -hmm. you know the barges seeing the barges go down the river mm -hmm. you know um so i don't know what my question is <laughs> can you talk about the meditative part of the work versus the narrative part I mean, also, too, I, I guess maybe even thinking about, like, what are we saying? I think that um, in some ways, like, you know, one common art, artistic strategy is is juxtaposition to put, like, you know, two things together that don't normally go together. And mm -hmm. while we're not necessarily doing that in this project, we're trying to put things together, put things in relationship to each other to kind of hope that people will produce their own, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, 
not not necessarily produce their own view, but to come to some conclusions on their own. And, um, you know, I'm not an artist that's a fan of like, you know, I made this and then people can think anything they want because I don't want them to think anything that they want. I want them to think what I'm thinking about. <laughs> I mean, I want them to, I, I don't want people to walk away and be like, yeah, immigration, you know, we have to build a wall. Like, no, of course not. That would be horrible. Or like, yay, I love commodity crops. No, that's not what I want. And so I do, you know, we do want people to think about something, um, but maybe it's about thinking about like another kind of relationship to the land that when you look out across a landscape that you're not, that you're not looking looking at a sea of, you know, green, but you're looking at, you know, something that's equivalent to like Amazon or Walmart, like, Mm -hmm. you know, massive industry um, that's connected to, um, you know, the whole globe. Um, And so that first project, uh, the first video called Submerging Land, Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of throughout says like, this is a lake, this is a swamp. And of course, you're not looking at a lake and you're not looking at a swamp. You're looking at cornfields, and so it's maybe that kind of, um, um, you know, I don't think juxtaposition is the right word, but that kind of strategy of asking people to look at something, um, you know, side by side um, to produce something, another way of thinking. Absolutely. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, and I think like maybe another way of, of, of saying some of that too is that for us, even we came to it with certain um, uh, conclusions already, just based on uh, you know already held political ideas, um, ideas about um, you know equity and justice and all those kinds of things. We bring that to, to it already, and so I think f- for us, part of part of the the project was was learning um, what is so if if we if we are going to reinforce a position that we already have or that we already take, which in many cases, a lot of the research we did did in certain ways, there were still many things, more things than not, that we didn't know or understand mm-hmm. um, about these things. And so I think a lot of the work is sort of trying to capture that learning process mm-hmm. in a way. So rather than starting from a position that is like, here's what you should think and feel about this thing, mm-hmm. um, first trying to try to make available some of the things that at least for us weren't available immediately that helped us understand better. You know, so going to a place like Beardstown, we went to that obviously thinking, yeah, racism is not a good thing here. Any instance where that's happening there is bad. Um, It's something that we would find reprehensible and all sorts of things, but understanding the specifics of how it plays out there, Mm -hmm. why it played out the way it did and what are some of the the undercurrents of it. And so thinking about the role that a company like Cargill that also doesn't mm-hmm. embrace racism, it mm-hmm. doesn't encourage it, mm-hmm. um, yet it benefits from cer- certain social structures there. Mm-hmm. But if you were to just talk about the race relations in Beardstown, you could do so without talking about um, Cargill. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, Cargill was extremely central part of the, the story. And Absolutely. so it, it, it is sort of what has engineered um, many of the social relations that are there. And even for us, like when Sarah mentioned, we had we started with the landscape in a way that also was kind of a way of saying, okay, the whole way that this landscape has been engineered, you know, it's not an inevitability, but it, it, it's been, you know, engineered through a series of decisions by industrialists, politicians, um, all sorts of people that has led to this point. And what were those things? How did it, how did it get here? Through my own education as a, you know, agriculturist in the city, I've heard so many times that Chicago has used to be a swamp, essentially. And uh, so you hear that, but you don't imagine southern Illinois and the way that the river sort of fingers out into the rest of Illinois as also used to have been a swamp. Um, And... There's one point in the film Submerging Land where it says the problem in the Midwest was that there's too much water, which now you think about water uh, conservation efforts. And here in the 1850s or late 1800s or whatever, they just decided to drain the entire lower part of (laughs) Illinois with tiles. And I've heard about tiles before. I didn't really know what they were until I saw your film. (laughs) And you have these cool animations that I guess, Ryan, you do the animations that actually show like here's how a tile works it goes underground and 
it literally drains all the water mm-hmm. away. This precious resource has just been completely squandered. The water table so that commodity crops, corn and soy can establish roots. The pipes drain water to ditches, which drain into streams and rivers, and eventually to the Gulf of Mexico. The problem in the Midwest is too much water. Three of the plows are equipped with the GPS machine control, so all the grading is being done via satellites with GPS. So it wasn't until I saw in your film where you see that kind of juxtaposition. Like, here's what a thriving wilderness should look like. Here's what Illinois looks like now. Just sort of an alien landscape, like a flat desert. Um, and then you mentioned that hunters and fishers in the mid-19th century, to them the bottomlands, which I guess is like that lower Michigan area, were considered common land um, until even after the Land Act I think it was called the Land Act or something of mm-hmm. 1850. Mm-hmm. So they didn't even recognize fences yeah. at that point. Yeah, so this this area is actually, um, I mean, Michigan would have been very swampy too in Indiana, um, but this is actually on the Illinois River, so it's a little bit west here. And they, I mean, the bottomlands they called, um, I mean, if you look at, if you drive around the Mississippi River or the Illinois River, um, one thing that's really interesting to see is where the river bluffs are mm-hmm. because they all have bluffs, you know. Mm-hmm. But the bluffs in, in, for instance, around Beardstown for the Illinois River are like a mile plus away. Mm-hmm. So you're r- driving through this kind of windy, you know, you're super flat and then you get this like beautiful windy landscape mm-hmm. and then you dip down again and you wouldn't, I mean, I have to say I've driven over those landscapes many a times and never ever thought about it, mm-hmm. but because we did this project, I was like, oh, that's a river bluff. But it's, but you don't know where the river, I mean, the river's kind of far away, you know? But it, so that much land, which would have been the bottomlands, was, was drained. It's incredible. Um, and so, it's an incredible yeah. feat of engineering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really is. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I think the Europeans had done it before. Mm-hmm. So these, you know, the folks who are doing it now what, wasn't a big deal. And they, they did think that, you know, mosquitoes, I mean, they, they right. thought that there's lots of problems. And it was a lot of problems. They couldn't get across it. Right. Um, but, you know, you know, um, indigenous people before them had devised all kinds of systems to navigate. But, but um, you know, in sort of conquer and, you know, acquisition of land, they needed a um, better way to to manage the land and and it was it is good farmland i mean it's right. it's prime it's beautiful yeah because it was underwater yeah. for so much of so, so you know was, the last fifteen thousand years or whatever so it made sense in some ways for them to um you know uh carve it up and make it into um you know arable farmland but in doing so it just meant that um you know this sort of this loss of this other wildlife and it was also a way to encourage the expansion of um, the United States. The westward expansion, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. it was a way, you know, basically, you know, they were they were giving, it happened differently in different states, but um, but states from Florida up to Illinois were, um, were all part of this um, um, Swampland swamp Act. Mm-hmm. And the, the land grant, and like, so like land grant schools are also part of the same. They are. Um, same system. This is how they, like, like the University of Illinois, they were schools oh. that were set up to essentially, um, uh, develop uh, uh, agriculture methods, uh, uh, modernize agriculture methods, uh, and and in in some ways facilitate the um, uh, the settlement and um, uh, agricultural development of those of those areas by settlers that were you know being sort of you know encouraged to move west. Interesting. Yeah. And now I'm bouncing back to a couple times you mentioned Brazil, and so I'm, maybe if people are listening, they think, "What's the connection to Brazil?" <laughs> and in um, a film called "The Great A Great Green Desert," your film "A Great Green Desert," you interview um, this PhD in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, named Gustavo Oliveira. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, he is so eloquent in the way that he describes how Brazil basically has been made to, certain parts of Brazil have been made to look like the bottomlands of Illinois. Flat, uh-huh. kind of arid, uh, soy and corn, and corn fields, even though uh, I'm guessing the surrounding areas are like the Amazon, are like, are like forest. Yeah, to the north and the west is the, mm-hmm. is the Amazon, and uh, to the east uh, is this landscape 
well, before you get to the coast is this landscape called the Sahado, which is a sort of varied grassland, which, it, you know, it turns out grasslands are where the vast majority of the, of the world's food, um, especially uh, grains, are produced. Um, and there's, and another, so there's another excerpt from where they talk about the Sahado as being like this super important um, uh, ecological system that people just don't pay attention to because it doesn't have the monkeys. And, uh, it's not the jungle, right? It doesn't have all the. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have the super charismatic, yeah. you know, like the most charismatic, you know, megafauna is a giant anteater, <laughs> you know, from that, from that region. Yet, as the scientists will tell you, it's, uh, it's the most biodiverse grassland. Um, in the world and in Brazil, it's a uh, it, it covers over a quarter of the mm-hmm. of the country, and um, it's a very important habitat for all sorts of migratory species, for endemic species. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it doesn't have the same um, carbon mass biomass as the Amazon rainforest, it's pretty close. Um, it's just that the biomass that it you know has doesn't look lush. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It, it, it's just a completely different aesthetic of the curve appeal. <laughs> right, exactly. So, um, I mean, one reason why we were interested in Brazil is because, again, listening to that farm report, it was clear that, that Brazil was a central player in, um, in, you know, the global grain. But also, too, when we were meeting farmers, um, when we were driving back and forth to Beardstown, we would stop and film, you know, harvesting and farmers doing their thing in the field. And we met many a handful of farmers and they told us about farmers from Illinois and, and this sort of like envy of Brazil. Um, and it's largely because um, this, the sort of north, northern central part of Brazil um, that is the Cejado grasslands region um, is has been um, converted to soy and corn production, um, cotton as well. Um, um, and it was um, farmers from the south um, of Brazil that were largely food farmers that were successful, largely European um, um, descent. Um, uh, successful farmers down there um, were encouraged by the government to move north and mm. sort of like um, you know Very similar to the westward expansion mm-hmm. of yeah the US so they you know they they're called colonists and they call themselves colonists um, mm. um, moving um, out into this sort of frontier and and converting the land from Cejado what they would think is an unproductive land to this productive land of corn corn and soy and that was made possible in part from the development of the tropical soybean that was was, um, created or made in the 80s, 70s? Yeah, I think between um, the 60s and 80s, yeah. Um, and um, that, you know, um, a soybean that could, could survive that um, landscape because they're, they're, if you look at this, the color and soil, soil and, um, you know, the the ground, it's, it's wildly different. The soil, mm-hmm. you know, it's like it's terracotta red. Soil, yeah. Yeah. It's a, and it's a semi-tropical landscape mm-hmm. and soybeans originated in the north of China in a very temperate, yeah. Um, yeah, completely it's amazing right. the engineering that goes into that. Yeah. So so we became interested in in like you know these sort of two Midwest, the Midwest of Brazil and the Midwest of um of um of the United States, and at the same time, uh, Claire Pentecost um, had been going with um, Brian Holmes to Argentina, and they were also looking at this um, central part of Argentina that was was being um, you know converted and. Um, um, and this sort of big push by U.S. companies and then companies in South America to be part of the um, agricultural, um, you know, sort of global landscape. And so, when we were in the most western part of North, uh, the most western part of Brazil that we went to, um, which is kind of like central um, Brazil, roughly mm-hmm. um, north central Brazil, um, we there's a new road that's been built in the last like ten or. 15 years called BR 163. Mm-hmm. Um, that's um, so th- you know as they carve out more roads in a in a landscape that hadn't had lots of roads car running through it. Mm-hmm. Um, the roads are specifically for the transport of corn and soy to get out of the central part of the country to go. Um, you know, be put on boats to go largely to China and sometimes Europe. Europe. Um, um, you know, when we were driving the those roads um, this last summer. Yeah, the billboards everywhere are like DuPont, 
um, Cargill, Dow, Syngenta, mm -hmm. um, you know, just tons of American yeah. names. Yeah, it, is, it, was, it was really overwhelming how much um, American presence is, is there on the ground, um, you know, part of this, um, you know, sort of new frontier, as they called it. Through the implements, through the, the industrial sort of machinery. Most of the farm, I mean, we should just be, right. most of the farms there are not owned by That's right. um, U.S. farmers. Mm -hmm. It's a very small number, mm -hmm. relatively speaking, of, of U.S. farmers that are that active down there because there are, there's all sorts of regulations yes. about how much um, non-Brazilians can own in terms of land and that sort sure. of thing. Um, but, but of course, like, you know, a lot of the, 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 the seed, the pesticides, a lot of that stuff is coming equipment. from... U.S. international yeah. companies. John yeah. Deere stuff. And right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Someone yeah. says you see the same tractors, the same combine. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the idea that 98% of the soy goes to animal feed, when you think about that, that statistic, that's probably the thing that makes me want to be a vegetarian more than any <laughs> gruesome, like, you know, butchering that I've seen or mistreatment of animals. Just that very idea, that whole rainforest um, whole towns, whole mm -hmm. regions can be just completely decimated, and rivers being polluted, and blah blah blah. And all the best argument for vegetarianism I can think of. And yeah, some of the things that Gustavo points out, and that I read in um, uh, reports and essays that he's written, and others too, is when you think about all of the all of the resources that are 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 being packaged into these soybeans that are being converted into animal feed, into meal, into oils for industrial purposes, small amount for cooking purposes. Sure. Um, it's, it's, it's immense. And it's, you know, one of the things that he says too is, you know, every soybean that's, that's even though they're, they're dried when they're shipped, um, that's put onto a ship to go somewhere is also essentially exporting water. You're, 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 you're taking the water resources of this area and you're shipping it off. Mm -hmm. I, think, I mean, one thing that is overwhelming, whether we were in, you know, New Orleans um, or, you know, driving from from here to New Orleans to sort of track um, soybean and, and corns moving through the landscape, or whether we are in Brazil, for me, what is overwhelming is, um, yes, sort of the scale of the farms, mm -hmm. I would say, but also the amount of energy and time and space that um, is taken up by moving um, you know, corn and soybeans around the globe. Um, and, you know, in um, a couple years ago, we went to New Orleans, for instance, and we went to one... Um, um, the terminal. Terminal, the thank you. <laughs> one, mm -hmm. one terminal on the... Um, on the Mississippi, mm -hmm. this is one of many. There's many, many, many um, there, and um, this is actually a small one because it's a farmers co cooperative. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a you know, large billion dollar farmers cooperative, but nonetheless, it is a farmers cooperative. Farmer owned. Farmer owned, right? Um, and they load an ocean going ship every 36 hours for um, 355 days a year. That's amazing. And the, that ship can hold about 50,000 acres. God. And so just to think about the kind of, the amount, like how continuous um, loading ships and moving grain around the globe is, is, is pretty um, overwhelming, I would it's say. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, statistics like that, like I learned in granular space, producing one pound of pork it takes four pounds of grain to make that pound of pork. I mean, the inefficiency of that power uh, um, energy usage is just... And, and the logic of, the, of industry, that is, that is efficient. Because right. they're now, they're, instead of shipping four pounds of, of something at this price, mm -hmm. um, you know, whatever corn might be going for, $6 a bushel or soy, $15 a bushel or whatever, um, they're, they're sending um, a, a pound of pork at way more than they get for the pound of grain. Mm -hmm. So it's it, the the logic is, the is algorithm. It doesn't have anything to do with the with the resources or you know things that are diverted or exploited in that way. It's just um, the math. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 the math is only done to calculate profit. So I have one request though. So yeah, I'd like to start with a a little tag at the beginning before I do like a kind of introduction of who you are and a little bio. Mm -hmm. But I wonder if 
So this is by Jessica Wallace and you, Sarah. Mm-hmm. Do you think you could possibly read a portion of this? Yeah. Even if you didn't write it yeah. necessarily, or if you didn't write that portion. So I love um, where it starts here. Intellectually? Yeah, and then down to the underline. Okay. It's a really nice piece. I haven't read this in a long time. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um... Intellectually, we know the collapse of our socioeconomic infrastructure cannot be fixed by any one president or political party. Emotionally, we want to watch somebody bring a house down on the wicked witch so we can wake up from this globalized nightmare. As political depression goes manic between high energy for Obama and disgust for simple reform being packaged as systematic change, we turn to desperation as a source that might ignite the change we've needed. We don't need a leader, new technologies, or more consumer products to produce long-term change. We need each other. Yeah, it's funny. I feel I, it's funny that like, we would have thought that what we think of as the antithesis of of the Obama election, what would have been, you know, what people were like, you know, Sarah and Jessica were saying at that time is still like, yeah, we still need to be saying that. I can't believe we were saying this at this time. We were smart. Look at us. <laughs> it's a good thing yeah. you wrote it down, right? That's right. <laughs> you recorded it. No, I'm kidding. Well, Sarah and Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's thank been you. Really fun yeah. to discover your work. Yeah, no, thank you. It's Thanks. been great. Yeah. Wasn't that cool? I hope you enjoyed that. You know, you can always reach me on Twitter, if you do that sort of thing, at farmondharma. That's at farmon, D-H-A-R-M-A. You can also send me an old school email to dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com and check out my essays on my website, dharmaonthefarm.com. I'm accepting sponsorship right now to pay for hosting this site. Also, I'd like to buy a new microphone so I don't have to borrow from friends anymore. And coffee, because I drink quite a bit of it. So if you're interested in being a nominal sponsor, it doesn't take much, please hit me up. So thanks so much for listening. Do share this podcast with your friends if you have like-minded folks who want to hear it. Until next time, farm on, folks. Farm on, folks.